Brian, would you like to join me on stage? So while Brian's working his way up to the stage, just a few introductory comments. I'm sure many of you have uh, met or listened to um, Brian in the past. Uh, I, I always enjoy listening to Brian. I wasn't one of your students, Brian. I was educated Raising overseas. <laughs> <laughs> so just a few comments. Um, so Brian's, Brian's current role is uh, as investment strategist and economist at Investec Wealth and Investment. Um, and he's Professor Emeritus from uh, at UCT. Uh, as you'll, some of you probably were lectured by Brian, I guess, you will know that he's got a distinguished academic career. Uh, he was Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at UCT from 1997 to 2001. And uh, he's performed the role of visiting professor at both Carnegie Mellon University and Columbia University in, in the US. Um, he's also got a distinguished consulting career and has consulted to many uh, of the, the big household names uh, other than Investec, um, BMW South Africa, uh, the Reserve Bank of the Federal Reserve Bank uh, of St. Louis, and Smith Barney Stockbrokers. Um, I tried to find some things that we don't know about Brian. Um, one of the ones I didn't know, Brian, was that uh, you were the founding chairman of the Victorian Alfred Waterfront Company that uh, redeveloped the whole waterfront uh, in, in Cape Town uh, from 1988 to 2001. So thanks for doing that. It's certainly a very beautiful part of Cape Town. And um, just um, something that Brian himself may not know about himself is, is that he shares a birthday with um, Martina Navratilova, uh, Chuck Berry, who you will remember, yes, yes. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, <laughs> and for the younger people in the audience, Zac Efron. So I don't know who that is either, Brian. So. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Brian. Good, Andrew. Thank you very much for those kind words. And uh, I'm uh, very pleased to be able to share thoughts with my fellow financial economists. I've always uh, regarded actuaries as interested in very much the same issues that have always interested me. Uh, behavior of markets, behavior of firms, financial, financial strategies, uh, monetary policy, of course, especially. I, Started my life as a, as a monetary economist, uh, looking at banking and, and uh, inflation, and then I moved uh, more uh, across to the uh, observation and analysis of, of financial markets. And some of that, uh, of course, uh, similar territory in some ways, but uh, as, we'll, as we'll see, uh, central banks, monetary policy, interest rates will play a big part in what I've, I'm going to talk about. And uh, as we all know, the South African economy is, is not a shining success story. We're not uh, delivering enough growth to seriously improve the standard of living of the poorest South Africans, which is a terrible shame, a terrible, uh, I think, waste of opportunity because other countries have done it. They've shown us how they do it. Uh, there are great success stories out there, and yet we're not one of them. Yes, the cycle has been against us, and we'll uh, talk about the cycle and how we might hope to escape from what we can hope to be a trough in the business cycle. Moody's, thank goodness, uh, thinks we're at a trough, looking for modest improvement, very modest improvement, enough to satisfy them in a way that perhaps will uh, make it easier for us to ra raise capital. Though I would say, as far as our growth story is concerned, cap capital isn't the problem, growth is the problem. If we grew faster, boy, there's a lot of capital out there in the world. And uh, we, would, we would be able to attract uh, enough of it to fund high return, uh, growth-encouraged investment. So, there is a, a cycle out there, and uh, the first uh, concern would be to escape that cycle, uh, the, uh, move off, off, off the trough. Uh, the other concern is, is much more fundamental, stru structural. Why, why do we grow so slowly? What's gone, what's gone wrong? What hasn't gone right? And it's quite clear to me, but clearly not to everybody else, but the problem is not, not, not enough uh, freedom, I would say. 
Another word for it you might prefer is not enough competition. Too much, too much uh, interference in what could be a much more competitive process. And uh, when you look at South Africa, and there, there are these agencies, these uh, research groups who look at competitiveness and freedom, world economic freedom, uh, World Bank, uh, ease of doing business, uh, Fraser Institution, in fact I worked for them when they started the pioneering work, measuring economic freedom, because they believed, and I think evidence is there, there is a strong statistical association, empirical association between more freedom and faster growth. More, more competition and faster growth. Where does South Africa rate? In the middle of the pack, uh, on the uh, Fraser Institution, I was shocked to see our ra uh, uh, rating has deteriorated from in the 70s to 96 out of 150 countries. On the ease of doing business, the World Bank, who I might tell you are not uh, against regulation as such. They're regulation agnostic, uh, but they hope for more efficient r regulation. So they put out measures that really encourage governments to try and improve their rating, get closer to the efficiency frontier, best practice. And I learned yesterday at a talk that uh, the Cape Town uh, municipality is uh, very much involved with the World Bank in trying to, to measure their performance. Things like how quickly do you register property? How many days? How many does it take you? How many separate operations do you have to undergo to start a business? What happens when you go into bankruptcy? How long does it take to come out of bankruptcy? What percentage of the, of the transaction is, is lost in fees? Sensible thing, things like that. Where does South Africa rate? Uh, 71 out of about 140. Um, with a bad bunch. Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, countries with similar uh, per capita incomes and uh, similar ratings. In fact, Brazil is a, is a, is a bigger disappointment th than South Africa. And I would say, for, the, for similar reasons, and I, as far as one can see, that they don't have racial issues in Brazil. They got over that a long time ago. They do have issues with, with growth. In fact, uh, they actually, uh, if you look at their recent record, I mean, they're in an ama a major recession, which South Africa must hope to avoid, incidentally, to retain our, our, our status in, in credit, credit markets. So uh, when we look at the ratings, and you see where the weaknesses, where the strong points, the, the, the weakest point in the South African uh, you know, comparisons is, well, you tell me, what, what is the weakest? Where do we perform? Worst, in fact, absolutely worst, and, the, and is in the efficiency of our labor market. We, co we come last. And it's not the redundancy payments with the problem, it's the actual hiring and, hiring and firing stuff. We perform extremely badly on primary and secondary and even uh, tertiary edu education by comparison. So, I would say clearly we need more, more freedom, more market for, more respect for markets. We need, of, of course, more, more com competent government, but I would say we need more skepticism about government and more, and more respect for business at, at all levels. And, uh, one, you, know, you we look at the world around us, and, and, and if you, you wanted support for my argument, which for freedom, as the generator of higher incomes, yes, the state has a vital role to play in encouraging freedom, letting people get on with their lives, their economic life, and protecting all important, their, their, their benefits, their gains, their incomes, their wealth, their property, their property. Rista made a, made a point about uh, the asset mix of South Africans. Entitling you know, ownership, etc. 
So I, I, th I think we need not, not only better government, we need, we need less. And particularly we need it in the labor market. And if you, as say an economist, without regard, with, take off your, your sort of political uh, economy thoughts, but just say, how would, you, how would you help the South African economy grow faster? And the answer must be, we it would absorb vast numbers of, of, of potential workers out of unemployment and underemployment, out of low productivity, maybe informal sector jobs, into, into, into proper jobs where people can learn on the job, become more productive, but, but just absorb labor as a, as, in a way that, that China did. I believe our people go to China and think, think that the Chinese success story is not about freedom, it's about government. Well, it's, in a way it is. The government of China, post Mao, gave people freedoms that they d didn't have before. Freedoms to migrate to jobs in the, in the cities. Freedoms to run manufacturing businesses. Very sexy. To save and invest in your, in your business enterprise. Yes. That's, uh, that's what South Africa needs um, a whole lot more of. But, but the labor, I mean, we, we rank 144 out of 144 on, on, on labor. I mean, we need labor-intensive entrepreneurs out there taking advantage of a potential labor force that to some extent is being discouraged from, from work. Unintended consequences of perhaps our, our welfare system, the reservation wage, is, is just perhaps in some ways t too high to encourage employment. It's not, it's not just all involuntary unemployment. Some of it may, may well be choosing, choosing not to work because actually it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, it should make a whole lot of sense. It's much better to deal with poverty through work than through welfare. But the welfare you can provide to your poor clearly depends on the uh, strength of your economy, your ability to raise taxes, as the rating agencies uh, emphasize. There's a, uh, one area in which South Africa seems to be doing very well in absorbing labor. Have you, have you noticed? No, not any government. Not only government, it's true. Go government has raised of well-qualified people. There are very few low-paid people employed directly by government. They all have decent jobs working for government, right? The, 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 the issue we have is it seems to be major political benefits from providing decent jobs. But we cannot provide decent jobs for anything like all the potential workers in the economy. More than, they talk about a, a national minimum wage, national which would be a disaster for employment in South Africa. National minimum wage. We, it's gone quiet a bit lately. Around 4,000 rand a month wage, wage or employment benefits. M much more than, many more than half South Africans actually earn less than that. We have a, a poverty problem even amongst the people who are working and they deserve better they deserve more competition for their work uh, rising uh, scarcity of labor uh, encouraged by, by by strong strong growth uh, the poorest of south africans as we know are not working but we can it's a, it's it's idle to think you can provide decent jobs for 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 anything like everybody. Yeah, come back to my labor absorber. How many Zimbabweans in South Africa? Anybody want to guess? How many? No, more than that, I would say. A million? Sometimes people say two million, sometimes people say three million. How many immigrants from Africa? You notice something about them? They're all working. They're all working. Why? Because they have to send money home, expensively, I would add a low reservation wage. They take the work at the wage rates on offer. It's even come to the point, a funny story, a, a tragic story. The other day somebody applied for a job and pretended, a domestic worker, pretended to be a Zimbabwean. <laughs> yes, 
the, the gardener knew she wasn't a Zimbabwean. It was a causer from the Siskai. I just, I just finish off on this tack. Uh, more competition, more meritocracy, more market forces, less crony capitalism, less crony employment, right? More competition. And there's a morally, I think, defensible way of looking at economic policy, morally, uh, at least to me. You say, say to yourself, about any policy or policy intervention, will this help the, the poorest 20% of the population? That's the question you should ask. Will it help them get jobs? Will it help them raise their lifetime incomes? Or will it be harmful to them? And who suffers from crony capitalism? We know who benefits. Who suffers from crony employment? Paying what is actually more than you would need to pay? For people perhaps less well qualified than they should be? Who suffers? Well, the taxpayer is paying for it, but the poor are being denied the benefits of that, of that expenditure that could be used much better. Anyway. Ask yourselves a question when anybody proposes a regulation. Also try and, uh, does it help the, the bottom 20, the poorest? Is it, is it helpful to the poor? And the other question is, do the costs of this intervention, as far as we can measure them, out, uh, uh, are, are they less than the benefit? Do the cost-benefit stuff. Are you intervening in a market to help very few at the expense of of many, if we think of our credit markets, how, how many millions of transactions every day, every week, every month go through fairly and, 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 and uh, you know, good for, for lender and borrower? Thousands, millions. And yet, of course, there's a few uh, accidents. And what we rely upon in credit markets as every other market is reputation, competition, which encourages firms to defend their reputation. That's how it works. Do we, do we appreciate how it works in South Africa enough? Do we understand market forces enough? No, no, we do not. Now, you, you, you should, then we come to the next question. Are there, are there, is it changing? Is the evidence of poor growth in South Africa, our failure to deliver, is it changing behavior? Is it changing belief? And that's what you would hope for. Is it encouraging uh, reliance more on our strengths? And when you look at South Africa's strengths, it's in the financial, where we rate well, it's in the financial markets. It's for our management, for our corporate governance. These are the things we seem to do well. Our corporations do well. These insurance companies, 18% return on capital. That's pretty high, is it not? What's the cost of capital for insurance? Come on, Risco. Hmm, 13, exactly. Beating the cost of capital. Should be doing more of it. Should be encouraging. And here we come. Is it changing the mindset? Should encourage merger and acquisitions from foreign insurance companies or entry by foreign... On the merger and acquisition side, which is a source of efficiency in the world, what are we doing in that territory, well, that, that area of policy, what's the competition policy? Of, it's to shake down participants in mergers. Shake them down. Make them pay up. On a kind of, of anybody who wants to do a merger or acquisition in South Africa, no, of any significance, will know Mr. Patel will be knocking on their door for money. Just like the Nigerian government knocked on MTN's door for money. That's not the way you encourage competition. It's not the way. And the other aspect there, coming back to the labor market, when you say a condition of a merger or acquisition is you retain the jobs, that's efficiency denying. A competitive economy doesn't retain jobs. It gives up jobs in slow-growing sectors and creates jobs in fast-growing sectors. You want a flexible labor market. That's a competitive labor market. Not one that treats uh, jobs as some kind of permanent entitlement. 
because of the failures of the labor market. Anyway, I've gone on a bit long on that. <laughs> Shared some of my frustrations, but uh, <laughs> that's why I do this kind of stuff. I still believe naively I can change the world for, for, for the better. So we, 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 we're going to click. Let's try. You know, you're the second group that's laughed at this. It, this is not a joke. Mr. Zimmer is, is not a joke. He doesn't see himself, I can assure you, as at all funny. And, and he isn't. And, he, and he's done our economy great damage because it's, he's made it, as I'll demonstrate, harder for the economy to lift off this trough. Structurally, that's one story. You may argue with me that replace Mr. Zuma, you wouldn't, you wouldn't replace the broad uh, thrust of policy. Incidentally, you can draw some comfort from the National Development Plan. It's not obviously hostile, it's a, but it's an agenda. I say we don't need plans. We need, we need action, decentralized action. But it doesn't stand in the way, and private I think the, you know, the, the sort of acceptable face of capitalism in South Africa is private-public partnerships. Whew. For SAA? What do we get out of SAA, incidentally? You know, the, the reason why governments are initially got involved in railways, in harbors, in, in airlines, was what? Because there was a lack of capital private capital to undertake those kinds of bold ventures. So governments put taxpayers at risk for bold ventures. That's the story of railways in South Africa. It's no longer relevant. You don't, you, it, you don't need the government to capitalize an ISCO or a SASO or an SA Airways or an ESCOM. Those days are past. The only interest in these public enterprise, public interest in these well, the interest in these public enterprises is that of the workers, the managers. That's all. That's all. There's no shortage of capital. Anyway, we'll go through some of these exercises. Yeah, I want to start with the Reserve Bank. It's not only Mr. Zuma, I think, who's held us back lately. I think the Reserve Bank is not uh, helping. Because it raises interest rates into inflation for whatever inflationary reasons, if there's a drought, if there's a famine in the land and food prices rise, they, they raise interest rates. Certainly, it reduces demand further. That's, that's all it does. Will it help the inflation outcome? Will it improve the weather? No. Will it, will it do anything to alter the behavior of the land? No, no, no link between interest rates and the RAND. The RAND dominated by global risk tolerances or degrees of and South African politics, the Reserve Banks. So all we know about, all they can know about interest rates is that they will reduce them as it has been doing. So you can, for every 100 basis points on short-term interest rates, the Reserve Bank model says the economy's growth rate declines by 40 basis points. So we've had these decline, and uh, has it helped us? Has it helped us attract capital? No, no, it hasn't. Has it helped the RAND? No. Why are they doing it? There's a kind of religion at work there that's denial of the, of the evidence. Inflation targeting. Is all very well when an exchange rate behaves itself, when it behaves predictably following inflation, not when it leads inflation. Because you can't control the, the, the RAND. And if you can't control the RAND, you can't control inflation. And that's the, the, the basic problem. Yeah, and you, you don't make the distinction there, then as the Reserve Bank is unwilling to make the distinction between supply-side shocks that push up prices like a drought or a collapse in the currency and excess demand, which is the usual source of inflation. Now, you're all, all in statistics, aren't you? 
This is the 95% confidence limits around the GDP forecast. Look how wide it is. Could be between six and, and minus two and a half. The chance of being where it's expected to be, well, maybe 50%. It's worse when you come to the inflation forecast. That's the, and, and South Africa is not exceptional in this regard. It's exceptional in the transparency of its uh, uh, process, assumptions, predictions, etc. Look at that. In, in, at the end of 2018, we have 95% certainty that the inflation rate will be between 10 and 3. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, the problem here is that central banks um, are uh, suffering a little bit from, from hubris. Pretending, to, and this is around the world, pretending to be able to do what actually they cannot do. Because they cannot predict GDP growth with enough accuracy. They cannot predict inflation ahead of the time with enough. How, for therefore, how therefore should they set their policies, their interest rate policies, their money supply policies? And I think this has become right. Central banks around the world did the right thing through the global financial crisis. They learned from monetary history. And that's what you have central banks for, to save the system when it's in danger of collapse. By pumping in cash, and in a new twist to that, pumping in capital, as they did in, 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 in the US into insurance companies and the like, to save the system. Central banks are there to save the system because every now and again, and you know, we spoke about Joe, we should have said Joe Lewis. Yeah. How many financial crises have you been through in your lifetime? In my lifetime? The last one was the, you might say, the Great Depression of the 1930s. It happens every now and again. Hard to predict. What you can hope to do is react appropriately by knowing enough monetary history to react appropriately. And the history of central banking is the history of how central banks starting with the Bank of England, coped with financial crisis. A harvest failed, a bank failed. A, ba a big bank can pull down other banks, do something, pump money into the system, save the good banks. Incidentally, there is uh, something coming out. I, I think I it's published in the Business Day today. I read about it. Uh, the problem with banking for the system is the banks do two things. The one is what every other financial institution does. And really what every business does. It borrows, it raises capital, and it lends, and it makes a turn. And banks have become or became sensibly highly leveraged. Very, very, um, you know, very uh, relatively low cash reserves, more likely uh, issues around capital reserve. But, but they, 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 they could leverage up. They didn't need to keep a hundred percent cash reserve. But what were they? What else were banks doing? And this was even. And this is even more vital function that uh, that a banks provide. Banks facilitate payments. Your banking system is your payment system, without which an economy cannot function. So the banks go down. The payment system goes down. That's why banks can't fail. You can't allow the payment system to fail. And banks bundled uh, deposit taking and, and transactions. And instead of charging a fee for transactions that covered the cost, they bundled the service in the interest rate spread. So you couldn't technically separate, or not technically, economically separate payments from uh, taking deposits and uh, lending out m m m most of that, a multiple creation of deposits. Is that still the case? Is it still the case that we can only compete with a bundled service? Can we separate payments from uh, more general banking? And the answer is, I think, increasingly yes. Blockchain. Blockchains have made bitcoins completely safe. I understand. I don't deal with them, but people who deal with them deal with them with complete assurance that their ownership rights will be recognized. 
that the, their bitcoins won't be stolen, that somebody else won't you know, capture their, their bitcoin account, which is the, the service banks provide expensively. Maybe we're getting to a point where we could separate payments from banking. And then we wouldn't have to worry so much about what banks do. Banks are being regulated out of business. You spoke about it. We didn't have a banking crisis in South Africa. The banks came through the financial crisis per perfectly well, and yet they're encumbered with, you know, Basel regu regulations. So maybe we can separate uh, transactions from banking with a 100% reserve requirement. A reserve's not kept with the banking system, reserve's kept with the central bank. 100%. Then, payments are one business, and the costs of making transactions now have come down dramatically, so you can pay a fee, and you don't need the banks. You just need your, your credit card, your Visa company, or your MasterCard company, or, or the equivalent. Or maybe the banks then just separate the two functions. Uh, from that. So I think that, that, that's interesting space to, to watch. And it would, it would solve the problem of banking f failure. Because it's not the banking failure that really matters. It's the failure of a payment system that would really matter. Incidentally, they're dealing with that problem in Zimbabwe at the moment. You noticed they have a problem with their, their payment system. Not enough dollars in, in circulation or, or in the banks. They've gone to a, do, they've dollarized the economy and they don't have enough dollars. They should have randified their economy, but they didn't. Maybe they'll have to. Anyway, that's again another interesting space to watch. Here's on the output gap. We even have trouble measuring the gap between potential and uh, actual output in South Africa, which indicates inflationary pressures. So your inflation is a function of what you expect inflation to be modified by the output gap, the slack in the economy. We don't even know what the slack in the economy is. Yeah, we come to Mr. Zuma and his impact. What did Mr. Zuma th threaten when he replaced the minister? What, how did the markets, how did you interpret his action? Well, the market said Mr. Zuma is appointing his own minister of finance so that he can print money. So that, so that fiscal conservatism will be uh, sacrificed to, to Zuma interests. And what does that mean? And that's classic inflation. Classic inflation is when central banks fund government expenditure by printing money, by giving governments deposit accounts at the central bank, which they then run down. And that, that cash enters the system, and uh, too much cash. Uh, over the willingness to hold cash, more spending, asset prices rise, prices rise, and you're on that uh, dreadful inflationary treadmill. So, more inflation baked in. How much more inflation? 7% a year. Incidentally, uh, <laughs> this is an important point for you actuaries. Uh, you take inflation risk when you buy a long bond, right? And you get the rewards for taking on that inflation risk. The more inflation you expect, uh, the more interest you'd want as compensation. And that's, uh, that went up as inflationary expectations went up. But implicit here is you, you do not have to take on inflationary expectations anymore. Since the 1990s, you've, you've had a wonderful alternative asset, which is called, go on, inflation-linked. And that gap between the inflation-linked real yield, around 2%, and the 9-plus percent you're getting on an equivalent uh, vanilla 10-year bond, that's compensation for inflation. And it's gone up to over 7%. And the important point here, and I, this is pretty much up to date, it hasn't come down. It hasn't come down. The Zuma effect in our financial markets is still there. And we notice Mr. Zuma has not given up his battle with the Treasury. That is a, that is a battle, I think, where, where there'll be no prisoners. It's, 
ongoing, and I think it was disturbing our market uh, this week to, to a degree. And how do we know to what, to what degree? Well, we can look at things like this, but we can also look at the behavior of the South African market compared to other emerging markets that are part of the same global capital pool, right? So we'll do a bit, we'll do a bit, of, a bit of that. So no real consolation. It hasn't got worse, but actually it, has, it hasn't got better. How do we get back? No. All right, we can move on a bit. Here is um, an attempt to uh, extract what is South Africa specific in what's going on in, in the world. And here's the gap, the spread gap between the Brady bonds, the worst emerging market borrowers, and South Africa. And South Africa borrows at significantly better terms than the average Brady bond. But the difference is now only 120 basis points. And it used to be somewhere over 200. So that gap also actually hasn't improved. So if there's been an improvement and there has been an emerging market risk tolerance and South Africa shared in this, we've not really got over the extra South African risk that was priced into the markets. What's our spread, our CDS spread? It's around 300 basis points. What's investment grade? Around 270 basis points. So our, our debt is trading as, as junk, but Moody's did not, and I think quite fairly, uh, did not uh, derate us. Because compared to Brazil and Turkey, actually we compare very well. It it, would, it should take a lot more than our conditions to really get a formal investment uh, uh, de-ranking, de de degrading. The question is, uh, if we were uh, downrated to junk, would it affect our interest rates? Well, the answer is not at all necessary. In fact, the history of, of, of these downrating is one that it doesn't move the market. The market moves ahead. And the actual uh, downrating uh, it may even be treated positively because it's saying to the country, get yourself in order and you probably will get yourself in order. And in fact, that force has been at work in South Africa. I mean, the, the danger of the, the down rating has been a force behind Mr. Gordon and the Treasury. Look, he says, if you don't behave yourself, we'll be downrated. Using the rating agencies as a, as a, as a convenient stick to beat in essential fiscal conservatives. Make, make another point to you, actuaries. How do bond markets do in predicting inflation? How have they done? Have the inflation predictions priced into the bond markets actually worked out? The answer is no. Bond markets have been particularly poor predictors of inflation over the long run. They're overestimated and they're underestimated. So there's consolation in that thought. I think myself that 7% a year uh, extra inflation in South Africa over the US oh, yes, or, or the, the, which comes to the same thing, the RAND depreciating at 7% a year on average over the next 10 years it's too pessimistic. It's, it, it denies our fiscal conservatism which I think remains in place. I think inflation will turn out to be less than currently expected. Those long-term interest rates can, can well come, come in. And we do not need to practice more than fiscal conservatism. Though a, bit, a, a bit more growth certainly helps raise revenues and uh, you know, uh, protect, protect governments against the temptation to print money. Let's see what comes up next. Yeah, we, yeah, we come up Again, the impact on the RAND. And here again, the attempt to say, well, what is the damage Mr. Zuma did? And uh, uh, have we come, got over it? So w what I've done here, based on 100 in 2016 January, is an EM currency average excluding South Africa. 
took eight or nine currencies, emerging market currencies, left out South Africa, gave them all the same weight, left out Singapore, incidentally, because that doesn't seem right, but anyway. There is another index of emerging market currencies put out by JP Morgan. I could have used that. It wouldn't have told me a, a greatly different story, but it would have meant including South Africa. So this excludes the RAND in that other index. And you can see how the RAND runs with emerging market currencies. It's mostly an emerging market story. The RAND is an emerging market currency. And it's recovered, fortunately, with emerging markets and other emerging markets. Why do I say fortunately? Now, we must come to the heart of this. Why do I say fortunately? I would say a recovery in the RAND, or at worst, stability in the value of the RAND, is essential for a cyclical recovery. What comes with a strong RAND? Less inflation. What comes with less inflation? Lower interest rates. What comes with lower interest rates? More household borrowing and spending, which is essential to the economic recovery. The weakness in our economy is the reluctance and ability of households to spend more and perhaps the reluctance of banks to lend, lend to them. Without the willingness of households to spend more, our economy cannot really make a cyclical recovery. Why is that? Because over 60% of our economy is household spending. We are a service economy servicing households. 68% of value add in South Africa is generated by service activity, including government. That's how you've got to think about this. It's like a developed economy. What matters most is the confidence of households. That drives the economy. Households spend more, firms spend more, satisfying their requirements, the economy takes off. Yeah, and, and that's the story of the five good years. You know when the South African economy had five good years? Between 2003 and 2008. Our economy averaged growth of over 5% a year. Off the back of a stronger RAND, a strong RAND recovery, lower interest rates, less inflation, a surge in household spending and lending to households. Bank credit at one point in, in 2006-07 growing at 30% a year. Almost all mortgage credit, extra mortgage credit against rising house prices. That's, that's where a recovery comes from. Now, that was overdone. You don't want 30% a year growth in bank credit. You'd hope a central bank could stop, stop that happening. If it came to pass another round of that, would our central bank be able to stop it? I'm not sure. But uh, lower interest rates, less in I mean, lower inflation, less. So that's why the RAND is important. And we want RAND strength from, from whatever source it comes. Better still, it comes from a mixture of more favorable global trends, funds going into emerging markets, and better South African risk management, reduce South African risk. How do you get foreign insurance companies to come in South, to South Africa? Reduce their risks, their regulatory, their merger and acquisition risks of doing so. And that's what we should be doing for every business in the world. If, but if we were growing faster, they'd be knocking on our door. So that's the story this year. Extreme volatility, incidentally, in the exchange rate, and that nasty movement towards the end, right at the end, the last few days, I think that's the Zuma-Gordon story playing out to some, some degree. All that talk about SA Airways. And uh, we don't need foreign money. We don't need capital because our planes are full. That was one of the most ridiculous remarks I saw last week. Actually, topped by Mr. Dan Manita, I think. I know him well. I didn't like his statement. He said, we invested in second Yala newspaper business because that's going to be the new NASPES in South Africa. <laughs> invested heavily, PIC money. Incidentally, a huge portfolio of unlisted assets 
sitting inside the PIC, now being exposed, usefully, I would say. Well, if you want crony capitalism, yeah, you, you would worry about things, or if you don't like it, you would worry about things like that, would, would you not? And, of course, uh, the IDC funding the, funding the Guptas and turning uh, you know, interest-bearing debt into e equity. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to make a point about the EM markets and the RAN. Let's hope for revival of EM economies. Let's hope for at least stable, rising commodity prices, perhaps. If commodity prices truffed, I only wish they, I could say, or you can't say without, I wish they have truffed. In fact, it's a very interesting development just by the side here, New, renewed interest in gold and gold shares. Why is, why is that? Renewed doubts about central banks. Central banks promise too much much more than they can actually deliver. They need to reduce the, their hype. We need to expect less from them, not, not as much as they seem to, to promise, which is to, to, to fine-tune the business cycle. They, they, they can't. And their pretense to do so encourages, uh, uh, encourages skepticism and, and demand for, for gold. And yeah, I did a little, a little model. I explained the RAND on a daily basis using my EM other currency index. So other currencies explain the RAND. And then I added the uh, EM risk premium, the, the Brady bond premium. I get a, a, a very good fit. Uh, it suggests that fair value for the RAND at the moment is about 14.3. That, that's that's as little as the RAND is, is fairly worth, given what has happened to other currencies. So, so the RAND, yes, has blown out, but it's probably only about a, a RAND in it. In December last year, there was, prob there was probably two RAND in it. So uh, it's not just a weak RAND. That's the whole point. And we want a stronger RAND. How do we get a stronger RAND? Flows into emerging markets. Flows into emerging market equities. I'll come back to that point. The character of, 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 of the JSC has changed, and uh, Risso uh, uh, pointed to that. The character of the JSC has changed. It's much less a play on the South African economy than it used to be. In fact, the link between the RAND and the JSC, what's the RAND beta on the JSC? About zero. The RAND plays, and, the, and the, what I call the South African hedges have, a, have about equal weight on the JC. Five minutes, right. Okay, so we're going to move on. I won't, uh, you can, you can get, I was just uh, emphasizing these points. And here's a, here's a point worth noting. Why did the EM markets improve from uh, late January? Actually, the news out of EM markets was getting better. Surprisingly better. What moves markets? Surprises. When the economy does better than expected, the markets move up. When it does worse, it's not about the economic news. It's about the news relative to expectations. And we got some better news. Very lately, the news is, is still positive. The, number, the surprise index is above 100, but it's not as much above 100 as it, as it were. I found this relationship very interesting. And what's happened offshore is that Europe is, is surprisingly better and the U.S. surprisingly worse, actually. We want a, a weaker dollar. Incidentally, if we want our economy to recover, bet on a weaker. You have to bet on a weaker, not a stronger dollar. Something Miss Yellen is well aware of. She, she actually doesn't want a stronger dollar for the sake of the U.S. economy and, in fact, for the sake of the world. In fact, the weaker the dollar and the, str the stronger the dollar, uh, that, that, that acts against her raising interest rates. She, she won't do it in June. She'll probably wait till September. 
the U.S. economy seems to be able to support higher interest rates, but with great caution. So I don't think there's too much danger of the Fed overreaching. I think the dangers of stagflation have perhaps been exaggerated. That is stagflation, stagnation plus inflation, which we've got in, in South Africa. Incidentally. And here was the euro and the surprise index. And here's the wisdom of crowds. Flows of funds into balanced mandates. Because the balanced mandates actually have become less risky. And I'd say they've become less risky because the risky parts of it have become much better diversified against South Africa risk and the South African economy. And that's despite, incidentally, something I don't understand, the lengthening duration in the bond market. Good for your retirement annuities. Not good policy. Why? Why pay up for the yield curve? Why lengthen maturities? Why worry so much about rollover risk when the risks is, are to rand debt, not to dollar debt? Maybe somebody in the Treasury can explain why they're so negative about the outlook for South African inflation, because that's what it implies. And so, sensitivities. I want to come to a South African success story, which again is the story of reducing South African risk. And how do we reduce South African risk? Through exchange control reform. And why should we reduce South African risk? You may ask, and, I, and I've got the answer. You reduce South African risk to keep skilled people like you working in South Africa. We want you. We need you. We think your rewards are market-determined, not crony-determined. I'm sure you agree. You, you work in a competitive industry. Climbing the slippery slopes to the top of the tree is very rewarding, but very risky. But a fair game, I would say, largely. Though not everybody would agree, unfortunately. Freedom from exchange control has enabled South Africans to diversify their portfolios, to buy insurance against South African failure, collapse, and also to provide South African companies with the opportunity to use their skills and the access that political reform in South Africa gave them to global markets, to raise capital offshore, to raise capital in South Africa, to invest offshore, a great success story. And it's come to the point now where our foreign assets exceed our foreign liabilities. In any currency you want to talk about, you divide by the same rate of exchange. Isn't that amazing? We're now a net contributor to global capital in, in a way, rather than not on the flows, but on the ownership of the stocks. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? And that's been allowed to happen. Market-friendly. I think sensitive to the crucial requirement that South Africa has is to retain human capital, which is so in such scarce supply and for which global competition is so intense. I mean, look at the, 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 the advertisement on your, on your desks telling you there are jobs waiting for you offshore. So, so we want to keep you here. We want to allow you to buy some insurance. Great stuff. Anyway, we'll follow through and show you how the 14 global companies on the JSC have performed in line with their global peers. That's what the JSC has held up. Can you imagine how the JSC would have looked in the old days in a recession of this order of magnitude? Our portfolios would have collapsed. Your your smooth bonuses would have gone out the window. On the dividend front, we're getting more than we're paying out. On portfolio investment, we're putting out more than we're, uh, well, still getting more than we're putting out. And on the dividend flows, we're getting more than we're paying. But here's the, here's the weakness. 
direct foreign investment, foreign controlled companies in South Africa still paying us enormous flow of dividends compared to the dividends being received by our controlled companies operating offshore. Faster growth, that dividend would be reinvested in South Africa. Capital is not the problem. And here I've got a solution which I think will make all the difference to South Africa. This is my contribution to transforming the South African economy. A revolution. And it starts with a view of South African tax. Where does it come from? Disproportionately from companies. And disproportionately less from social security contributions, from payroll taxes. We want to reverse that. I say get rid of company tax completely. No company tax. 200 billion? Relief for companies. Tax dividends, interest income, rents received anywhere by the pension funds as ordinary income. You tax all the stuff that comes out. You leave the companies alone to make their own decisions about what comes out, what they write off, what depreciation allowance they do. You know, they, every economist will agree that the company tax system everywhere in the world is a huge source of distortion. Why? Because you're not taxing the owners. You're taxing an intermediary between them, the owners, and their, and their partnerships. Tax them as partners. Tax them fully as partners. And 200 billion comes out. Companies, this becomes a haven for doing business. And social security tax, 3 4% would do it. Tax on payrolls, paid by employers. Though we know better, it'll be a salary sacrifice in due course. It'll look better. And accompany it with a wealth tax, because wealth will, will surge. A tax on everybody's wealth, which I have a nice redistribution aspect to it. Right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Right. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no. No, no. Questions. I think, well, I think um, we've got two minutes for questions. So, and I think, well, Brian, you'll be here for a while afterwards. Are you staying for no, tea? No. Oh. No. Otherwise, you can have him at the tea break. Home to well Cape Town. Okay, so just two minutes for questions. <laughs> but the weather's shocking, Brian. <laughs> you always said you want to earn a Johannesburg salary in Cape Town, yeah. right? Absolutely. And somebody said to me, "No, no, no, you want to earn a London salary in Cape Town." <laughs> okay, well, let Mister have the. Yeah, Brian, just one quick one. So, so you mentioned a wealth tax, but surely if you scrap corporate tax and you increase maybe capital gains tax to the same level as income tax, you wouldn't have to have a wealth tax. I mean, well, a, a capital, it's a realized capital gains tax. You, the trouble with the capital gains tax is only unrealized. So there's every incentive not to realize capital gains. So that's why I say uh, have a wealth tax. Though then you'd have to add in uh, non-listed company uh, wealth. So it means you'd have to look at the books of companies. So you wouldn't have market value, you'd have to use book value. So those are sort of complications. But I think, what is the present value of 200 billion, inflation linked forever? What multiple would you put on 200 billion? You'd put on perhaps 25 times. That's, that's what we're talking about as far as wealth put. And who owns the wealth? And this is one of the great travesties in South Africa. We don't count wealth held indirectly through retirement funds of one kind or another. Who are the owners? What racial composition are they? Increasingly black. So when we're doing BEE, -E, we're advantaging a few at the expense, I can tell you, of many, many more. One more? Any more? One more question? No? Okay, Brian. Well, I think um, we'd like to say a big thank you to you. It's very interesting. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. As a guest of the Actual Society, we do have a, a, a gift for you. So, if, I assume you read books. Um, so, we've got something nice. Not only do I read them, I write them. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but nobody else wants to read them. <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for coming through today. Um,
So just just quickly, um, we will what will manage the uh, time quite easily. We'll shorten the tea break, and uh, you'll still get your professionalism CPD. So what I propose is that we have a, a shortened tea break until 11:15. Back in the room at 11:15 for a prompt start if we can. Thanks very much.